This week on Useful to God, Richard Averbeck joins Dr. James Spencer in a conversation on Old Testament law. James, tell us about your guest. Yeah, so Dr. Richard Averbeck um, is Emeritus Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. That is where I did my PhD, and Dr. Averbeck was my dissertation advisor. Um, so we've known each other for uh, since around 2010, probably, 20, 2009, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually at Trinity from 2005 to 2012. Um, and so we worked together a lot during that period, had a couple interactions after that, and it's great to reconnect. Um, you've got a new book, um, Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church. I'm excited to talk with you about it, but welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So what was the, uh, we'll just start out, kind of roll into it. What was the, what was the inspiration to write this? What, what sort of drew you into this topic? Well, um, I uh, back in the 1990s, I was uh, working on some articles for Ben Gemmeron's New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, and I wrote a whole bunch of articles on ritual terminology in the Old Testament, Levitical types of materials. And part of the project was to run these uh, ritual terms through into New Testament backgrounds as well. And uh, what I found was that the New Testament is using uh, a lot of this ritual terminology and concepts to teach the Christian life in in the church. And uh, I had been accustomed being told that that didn't apply to the Christian, that it was that Christ was the fulfillment of that. And therefore, uh, we don't apply the ritual law uh, to the church and to the believer now. But the text kept doing that. It applies it to Jesus as our sacrifice for us and so on in all sorts of different ways. But it also applies it in all sorts of ways to the Christian life, how we should be living now. And um, I was accustomed to hearing that that part of the law didn't apply uh, to the Christian today in in any kind of direct guidance sort of way. And then uh, uh, there was this threefold division of moral, civil, and ceremonial fit in the ceremonial, the moral applied, the civil did for some people, but uh, the ceremonial didn't. And so I found that the text was, I was running into a lot of brick walls when I was in the text for taking that kind of approach to this discussion. And that led to a long time work on the law and how it does come through into the New Testament. So that was really the background just to what got me going in a different direction than what I've seen in the literature by and large. Yeah. I mean, sometimes those grids, you know, that civil ceremonial and moral law, they can feel like they're really helping us. But once you mm-hmm. dig a little deeper into it, you really do find out that those aren't as helpful a category as they, as they might seem. Mm-hmm. And that we're really missing out on some of the richness we might reap if yeah. we just got rid of them and read the law, mm-hmm. as, as you say in the book, the unified, you know, the unified nature of the law. And you, mm-hmm. you had two other things, which I really love that threefold sort of how we should look at the law. It's mm-hmm. good. It's weak and it's unified. And so maybe mm-hmm. could you talk through those three characteristics and, and sort of how you um, consider those? Yeah, there's, there's um, the, the law is good. Of course, God gave it, <laughs> but, yeah. but there's also passages old and new that talk about how good it is. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, 
You know, it's about that from all sorts of different angles. But then you come into the New Testament, you find out that even in Romans 7, when the Apostle Paul is talking about law in relation to the Spirit, what happens is that he says the law is good and it's holy and it's spiritual and it's all present tense. That's that's important. And so I started out with with that concept, said, okay, one of the things we have to hang on to really tightly is the goodness of the law. Uh, the Apostle Paul did, and it's not past, it's present and future. It's it's a good thing. Well, then, uh, I also noticed, and it's really in the same passage in Romans uh, 8, and some some in Romans 7, too, that the law is also uh, has a weakness. It's, it's weak in that there's certain things it can't do. Not even God's law can change a human heart. It's a great standard. It's good. It's holy. It's spiritual. But I can't do the dynamic work that needs to be, get done in my heart, my in my spirit, that only the Holy Spirit can do. And he develops that extensively in that core passage in Romans 8. So I took those two concepts from there and said you and, and have dealt it in such a way that you have to hold on tightly to both of them. You don't let go of either of them ever, okay, uh, in your thinking about what's going on in the law. and. Uh, the problem that I found is that in certain circles, people want to say the law is good, but then they take it back with the other hand. And other people say that the law is weak, but they don't believe that either. They take it back with the other hand. And so uh, that didn't, the system, it wasn't working uh, in terms of how, in terms of when you come to the text. And then another thing is that uh, we have this this new covenant passage in Jeremiah 31 talks about the law being written on the heart. On, and that's the Mosaic law. In other words, the, the new covenant even does not leave the law behind. It brings it right into how we should live. Jesus does this, for example, with the two great commandments, which are what the whole law hangs on, uh, as he puts it, and so on. And so uh, I began to realize that, okay, this is where the problem is. We're treating it as different sections rather than as a unified whole that gives guidance for how to live uh, as a believer. And yeah, so I mean, that that's where I, that's kind of connects with what I said earlier. Yeah. And I think you, you drew in the covenant, um, the new covenant specifically. And, um, you know, I've read some pieces that have come out probably in the last three or four years or so. Um, some from some prominent pastors that talk about the old covenant um, sometimes equating that with the old Testament, which I think is a little mm-hmm. odd. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also describing what really is a quid pro quo relationship with regard to the law within the covenant. And so their argument was, um, you know, obedience in the old Testament is really about getting something from God, making God happy enough that he'll bless us. And, you know, that sort of understanding of the law suggests that it's not really all that great. <laughs> <laughs> that it's not really, it's not even so much that it's weak. It's just, it sort of was the the means of transaction between Israel and God. And I think that view is just really skewed. Uh, can you talk through a little bit about how the law fits within the uh, uh, the various covenants, really the Old Testament? And, and then, you know, that gives us a better understanding than I think of how it will fit with the new covenant, how the law sort of travels into the New Testament. Yes, then this is actually why I did so much with covenants in the book as a background for understanding where the law really fits yeah. and how it actually works. 
um, uh, Abraham is before the law, and uh, yet he said to he said to have him been fulfilling it. You know what I mean? It's law, yeah. covenant, so on and so forth. In uh, Genesis twenty six verse five, what I think is happening, and what I see happening in in the text, is that the apostle Paul is using uh, Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, got a covenant of his righteousness. To argue for the, the gospel gospel message in Romans four, Galatians three, he's using it to argue that that uh, we're not nobody was ever saved by the law, okay, uh, or by circumcision, because there was no law in Abraham's days in Genesis fifteen, and circumcision doesn't come till Genesis seventeen. So therefore, these things were never intended to be the things by which you uh, uh, were saved and came into good relationship with God. What they were is guidance. The laws are guidance for those who have Abrahamic faith, the kind of faith that's talked about in Genesis 15, verse 6. The Abrahamic covenant is like the umbrella covenant, in, and, and the Mosaic covenant fits underneath the, the uh, Abrahamic covenant. And in fact, there wouldn't be a Mosaic covenant if there wasn't a previous Abrahamic covenant. We've learned this from Exodus 2 and other passages. Mm-hmm. It comes right out and says that. Yeah. And then, so, so you begin to get this growth of covenants from the Abrahamic to the Mosaic covenant, and the covenant with Abraham was with a family, uh, and so the the issuing of what he's supposed to do with that covenant has to do with family level types of things. When you get to the Mosaic covenant, that family has grown into a nation, and that nation needs guidance as to how to live Abrahamic faith as a nation, and that's how we get the law within the Mosaic Covenant. That's what the law is. It's guidance for them as Abrahamic believers how to live their life well in the ancient Near Eastern world of ancient Israel. Then we get to the Davidic Covenant. And the Davidic Covenant is this family has grown into a nation that needs a king. And this king is supposed to have Abrahamic faith. And he's supposed to even write his own copy of the law according to Deuteronomy 17. So he lives according to it. This the Davidic covenant is under the umbrellas of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and, and Mosaic covenants, and it is is the kind of thing that has to do with the dynastic promise and all the messianic things that come through into the New Testament, Jesus as the ultimate Davidic king. So all of these covenants come through in the New Covenant in various kinds of ways. And we have the New Testament telling us how that works. We're children of Abraham by faith. And so on. We have the law written on the heart. Uh, uh, we're living under the, the King Jesus, okay? The yeah. ultimate Davidic King. So these all fit together in a certain way. And what the law does is give guidance to what God wants from his Abrahamic believers. What does he want from believers? And how it's kind of a guide to life. Now, it's, it's written directly to ancient Israel in their day. So it's it's it, it was very it was the kind of thing that was written so that they could live well in their world yeah. under under God. Now, as we come into the New Testament, certain changes are made because the new covenant is a different kind of covenant yeah. than Israel. Israel is a nation. The new covenant people are not. And we spread out through all the nations and so on. And so that has effects on how uh, it comes through. And I trace that uh, in the book. How does it come through? And let the Old Testament do what it does, let the New Testament do what it does, and just let it fall that way. And I think it really, 
clarifies itself uh, as you hang on to the three theses we theses we yeah. talked about before. Yeah, and when you when we think about law, I mean, you know, obviously we have laws in the nation in which we live right now. I mean, but we really need to sort of do some sort of differentiation, don't we, between the laws we have in our nation versus the laws that we're looking at, the sort of instruction we're looking at that's given to Israel. I realize, you know, they're obviously two different times, they're two different nations, and so the laws are going to differ. But there there almost has to be a way where, as we're looking back at these national laws that were given to Israel, we're not trying to to keep them in the same way that we try to keep the laws that we live in in our society right now, right? Like, yeah, I yeah. should obey the speed limit kind mm-hmm. of thing, right? Right, right. Well, it, um, the, as I mentioned before, the, the, the law in the Old Testament was written for ancient Israel initially, yeah. but God wants the same thing from everybody everywhere at all times, okay, yeah. in terms of how we walk with him and how we live with our neighbors and so yeah. on and so forth. And that's why Jesus summarized the law according to the two great commandments. Everything hangs on that. And uh, and that's comes on through into the New Testament in all sorts of different ways. But it keeps on using things from the Old Testament law in order to develop that. It doesn't leave the Old Testament law behind. In the New Testament, we are told, because we're not a nation, to make sure we pray for our government that we're under. You know, like Romans 13 and other passages develop this. And so, yes, uh, I am responsible to keep the laws, but I'm responsible to my nation, okay, in various ways that uh, are national, whereas the church doesn't have a national uh, kind of foundation. It's it's across all the nations and peoples and so on and so forth. So, for example, it wouldn't be appropriate on Sunday morning to take an adulterer out in a church parking lot and stone them to death. You know what I mean? That's that just not what you do because we don't have that kind of covenant. Okay. Right. We don't manage things on that level. We manage them on the level of how we love God and love people and all the developments that come on through then in the New Testament with specific laws being cited to teach this or that. Yeah. And I, I'm interested. I mean, I, the Ten Commandments have featured as such a prominent part of the Old Testament law, in, in especially in American life. I mean, there are still some folks who would say that, um, you know, the Ten Commandments undergird or stand as the fa- at the foundation of all American society. And um, it's interesting to me when I hear that, because, you know, at least the first three are very specific to um a, you know, a covenantal relationship with God Mm -hmm. and a deep devotion to him that America has never arguably Mm -hmm. has never really had. Mm -hmm. But we can't dismiss the relevance of the Ten Commandments either. Mm -hmm. And I think especially as a guide for believers today um, is sort of where I can make sense of that. Um, I think there are probably some moral principles we can tease out of there that could be applicable to other areas of life. But I mean, what, how do you, when your section on the Ten Commandments, you deal a lot with how the Ten Commandments and sort of, uh, you know, they pull across as sort of a, you know, the basic n- principles, I think you call them, of the mm-hmm. covenant. Can you just talk through that just a little bit? Well, the the Ten Commandments were meant to be kind of the basic principles of life yeah. in ancient Israel. And the rest of the law really kind of unpacks what that looks like in this area, that area, all the different areas of life in ancient Israel. 
it's interesting to me that when Jesus in the Sermon on, talk, Sermon on the Mount talks about he doesn't want to break the law, he doesn't want to abolish it or anything like that. But then he talks about, you know, you've heard it was said, you shall not murder. I say to you, you shall not hate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. this became kind of a way for him to explain that that law about not murder needs to be written on the heart. You, 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 mm-hmm. you don't not just murder, you don't hate, which would lead to murder. And if you look at backgrounds, you can see how this is connected. And this goes on through. It is also interesting that in Romans 7, when Paul talks about the goodness of the law and the weakness of the law, he uses the 10th commandment, you should not covet, as ex- his example law in order to talk about, yeah, the, the Bible can tell it. And it's a good thing to be told not to covet. But just being told that isn't going to stop you from coveting. Right. In fact, because of in our fallen nature, <clears throat> we're going to tend to think about wanting to covet. You know what I mean? The more we <laughs> try to make that a rule of life. And so what happens is that uh, he uses that as an example of the weakness of the law. So the Ten Commandments are just as weak as any other part of the law in terms of what Paul is talking about, in terms of the transformed life of the believer. Uh, it, it's a great standard, very good standard. It can't make happen in me what only the Holy Spirit can make happen. Therefore, it is weak because of me. But the weakness is really in me, not in the law. You know what I mean? It's, it's, right, it's right. that kind of, the problem is with me. Right. Yeah, and so the Ten Commandments are still that unified aspect of the law, but they do occupy a unique place within it to a large degree. And it, it one of the things, I when I read your um, treatment of, of that when Jesus says, you know, um, you've heard it said that you should not kill. Um, I say to you, you should not hate, you know, that passage there in Matthew five, what struck me was the resonances with Leviticus 19. And I've just found it sort of fascinating that here you have Jesus talking that idea of the emotive aspect, you know, um, and you cite Leviticus 19, I think it's 18 and 19, maybe Mm -hmm. I might have those verses wrong. Um, but, uh, but he, in the old Testament, you already have this notion of, listen, don't hate your brother. Mm-hmm. It's there. And so sometimes I think we can read those passages and miss the fact that Jesus is hearkening back to something that's just been sort of maybe forgotten, neglected from Old Testament law, that this new spirit and the way it's being treated in the New Testament or by the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes has just lost something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah go ahead. And that's right in the context. He leads into that uh, murder discussion of you got to, your righteousness has to be greater than that and described as the Pharisees yeah. uh, that, that to be in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. So he's proclaiming really the Sermon on the Mount. He's proclaiming the law, the ethos of the kingdom of heaven. And he starts out the Sermon on the Mount with the, with the uh, Beatitudes. They're kind of like the parallel to the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Okay, yeah. they lay the foundation, and he goes from there then. And uh, what I think is happening is that the uh, uh, the development of that then, you can see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and then you can see it in his other teachings, but also he's not just teaching about it. You can watch how he lives, and he's a good example of how to live that, how to do what he's talking about. And so we have both the teachings and we have the example to live by 
And that is, I think, really helpful to the New Testament believer. Yeah, I just think it's it, it to me, it's it is fascinating when I read through the Gospels and you catch these glimpses of Jesus sort of going back into the depths of the law, really. Mm-hmm. Right. And going into mm-hmm. those passages that we don't we don't spend our time on when we do our devotions. Yeah. <laughs> and and digging those back out. I mean, even the parable of the Good Samaritan makes a very similar point. Um, he, you know, it's fascinating. I, he never really answers the guy's question, who is my neighbor, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Um, he tells a story and then reverses the question, who was a neighbor to this mm-hmm. man? And it ends up being the good Samaritan. But I mean, all of those are very much old Testament concepts. I mean, you can find things about care for foreigners and making sure that, um, mm-hmm. anyone who crosses your path is not neglected, um, but really and truly cared for. That's all embedded in a lot of those Levitical uh, laws in Leviticus. Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of fascinating to understand that this, if we look at the law as a whole, we can begin to understand the ethos of Jesus just that much better. Yeah, that, that, that really is one of the things that's really interesting about that Leviticus 19 connection is in verse 18, you, you shall love your neighbors yourself. The, yeah. the second great commandment as Jesus has it. But if you go on later into the, into that same chapter in chapter in verses 33 and 34 what happens is that he then talks about the foreigner that's within your land okay the one who's with yeah. and he says you shall love him as yourself okay in other words it takes it in the direction that jesus then goes with it with the good samaritan it's, it's the same kind of thing it's it's already there in the yeah. law and jesus is pulling that in because it's been taken out by the teachers of his day. And he's really pushing back on that vigorously. Yeah. Well, very good. We're going to um, kind of wrap up this first segment of the show. And uh, and and then we'll come back for part two a little bit later. Um, but uh, this has been really great stuff. And I'm excited to go into a second session and talk a little bit more. So thanks for being here for this part. And uh, we'll we'll see you on the next episode as well. Sure. Well, and I want to say, too, that uh, that the liturgical year has actually, it's uh, on Matthew 5.17, which I actually, uh, very timely, uh, gentlemen, on uh, this subject. Next time on Useful to God, we will have Richard Averback back. <laughs> we will talk more on Old Testament law. For more, go to Useful to God. There you will find all kinds of useful resources. You can listen to all of our podcasts and a compilation of the minute feature, Becoming Useful to God. That's usefultogod.org. I'm Richard Beatty, and for Dr. James Spencer, thanks for listening.